Well, it was good to take a little break from our series in John last week to consider the incarnation around Christmas time. But today we're going to resume uh, our series in John. And so if you would turn to John chapter 1, we are going to look at verses 29 through 34 this morning. John 1, 29 through 34. And so let's just begin by reading this passage of Scripture together, and then we'll dive in. This is the word of the Lord. John 1, beginning in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his... Sorry, it's the wrong verse. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said... After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Amen. That's the reading of God's Word. Every person must reckon with Jesus. His impact upon human history is truly unparalleled. I think Really, it could be said that there is not a single person on the planet today who has not been affected by Jesus in some way, whether they know it or not. Given this, it is fitting that people everywhere try and figure out who Jesus is and why his influence has been so great. Given that Jesus lived before modern technology, The best way to do that, then, is to read the testimony of those who knew him personally. And one of those who bore firsthand witness to Jesus' life was the man, John the Baptist. Indeed, everything we know about John the Baptist from antiquity tells us that he believed himself to be a person who had a special role from God to be a forerunner and a witness to Jesus. So if you want to know who Jesus is, well, the testimony of John the Baptist, which of course is recorded for us in the New Testament documents, is a good place to start. And that's what we have right here in John 1, 29 through 34. Now, there are four things in this text that John the Baptist says about Jesus. So I want to take each one in turn. First, John testified that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is verse 29. Now, in terms of the chronology here, on the previous day, you remember from last time we were in John, that John the Baptist had a dialogue with a delegation of priests and Levites who had been sent by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And they wanted to know who John claimed to be 
And John had told them, quoting from Isaiah, that he had been sent by God to prepare the way of the Lord. And then he told them, verse 26, that this one coming after him was actually standing in their midst, though they didn't know who he was. The next day, in our text, verse 29, tells us that John identified who he had been talking about. So we read in verse 29, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, Jesus had indeed been in Bethany across the Jordan where John the Baptist was, and the day after his dialogue with the delegation from Jerusalem, John saw Jesus approaching him and pointed him out to those around him. But look at that striking way that John chose to identify Jesus. Of all the things he could have said, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what did John mean by describing Jesus like this? Well, the description almost certainly has its roots, of course, back in the Old Testament Way back, for instance, in Genesis chapter 22, you remember that God had famously commanded Abraham to offer up his son, Isaac, as a burnt offering. And while they were walking up to the mountain to the appointed place, we're told in verse 7 that Isaac stirringly said to his father Abraham, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham responded saying, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Later on in the book of Exodus, of course, you remember that God had instructed the Israelites to slaughter a lamb without blemish and to put the blood of the lamb over their doorposts so that they wouldn't perish in the 10th judgment plague. And then, of course, in the next book, Leviticus, we see that lambs are one of the animals which priests were to sacrifice before God in the tabernacle to atone for Israel's sin. And then if you read further, of course, you come to Isaiah 53, where the prophet Isaiah predicted that the Messiah himself would be put to death as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people, and the Messiah is compared to a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Let me read to you a little bit from that 53rd chapter of Isaiah, verses 7 through 11. It says of the Messiah, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearer is is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now it seems unavoidable that when John the Baptist saw Jesus and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, 
he had these kinds of passages in mind from the Old Testament. John the Baptist somehow, whether it was through you know, divine revelation or just his own understanding by the Spirit of the Old Testament had some degree of understanding that Jesus, as the Messiah, would be the ultimate sacrificial lamb which the Lord provided to die for the sins of his people so that they might be forgiven. And while it would have been highly unusual for a Jew to understand this about Jesus prior to his death on the cross, this, of course, became common knowledge among Christians afterward. So, for instance, Jesus is repeatedly described as a sacrificial lamb in the, by the apostles in the pages of the New Testament. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Peter said that we were ransomed, quote, with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, 1 Peter 1, 19. And John, do you remember, famously saw Jesus as a lamb who was slain and said that by his blood, he ransomed people for God from every nation in his vision in Revelation chapter 5. By the way, that's probably what John the Baptist meant when he said that Jesus would take away the sins of the world. Not that he would secure forgiveness for every single human being, but that he would do so for people from every tribe and language and people and nation in the world, not just the Jews. So first, John testified that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, verse 29. Now second, Jesus describes, John describes Jesus as the one who comes after him but outranks him. John describes Jesus as the one who comes after him but outranks him. This is verse 30. So after pointing to Jesus, declaring him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you see that John went on to say, verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So John the Baptist was aware that he was the forerunner to the Messiah, sent by God, according to the prophecies, to prepare the way before his coming. And he knew that the Messiah would come after him, but he also knew that the Messiah would be greater than him. And here we are told that on some prior occasion, this is he of whom I said, on some prior occasion, John had expressed this fact publicly, and he'd done so with an explanation. He had declared that the Messiah would be greater than him because he was before him. He existed before him. Now, this is interesting because John can't just be talking about birth order. I mean, you know the story in Luke 1. Who was older? John was born before Jesus. He was a little bit older, so when he says, he was before me, he can't be talking about uh, being born before him. So what John must have meant 
when he said that Jesus was before him is that Jesus existed before he was born, before Jesus was born. Indeed, this is actually a very common theme in the Gospel of John. For instance, I think of John chapter 6, verse 33, where Jesus said, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then he went on to say, I am the bread of life, verse 35, and I have come down from heaven, verse 38. (laughs) Just think about that. If anyone that you know said, I have come down from heaven, you'd think they're crazy. That's what Jesus said. And it wasn't lost on the Jews who heard him. Verses 41 and 42 said the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? He outranks me because he was before me. He existed before he was born into the world as a man. Or consider John chapter 8, verses 57 through 59, where Jesus told the Jews, he said, Abraham had seen his day and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. Uh, Have you seen Abraham? Jesus responded by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that was a shocking statement. And you see that because the next verse says that the Jews immediately picked up stones to stone him to death, which, of course, was the punishment for blasphemy. Why? Not only was it because he claimed to have existed before Abraham, but that he had taken the name by which God had identified himself to Moses at the burning bush, I am. The Gospel of John, you see, it doesn't deny that Jesus said these things, but it doesn't affirm the Jews' condemnation of him for it. Rather, it claims that what Jesus said about himself was true. For, remember, the book had opened with those striking words describing Jesus as the word who was with God in the beginning and who was God himself, the one through whom all things were made. So whether or not he understood all of that, John the Baptist at least knew and he had publicly testified that the one coming after him, Jesus, outranked him because he had existed before his birth. In verse 30, he's saying, this is he of whom I said this. So second, John described Jesus as the one who comes after him, but outranks him in verse 30. Now third, John's baptizing ministry revealed Jesus to Israel as the one who would baptize in the Holy Spirit. So John's baptizing ministry revealed Jesus to Israel as the one who would baptize in the Holy Spirit. This is verses 31 and 32. Now, if you look in verse 31, John the Baptist says this. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So this is a little confusing, but try to follow me here. 
At the time John was speaking, he obviously did know that Jesus was the Messiah because he had just pointed him out and said, behold, the Lamb of God, right? But here, John reveals that there was a time in the past when he didn't know that Jesus, this man, was the Messiah. Even though, he says, the whole purpose of my baptizing ministry, one of the purposes, was that he might be revealed as the Messiah to Israel. So I didn't know, but one of the reasons I came baptizing was so that he might be revealed. So the question that leads us is, how did John come to know that Jesus was the Messiah? the one he was preparing the way for. Well, John actually gives us the answer here. He said, for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. In other words, it was through John's baptizing ministry, somehow, which he hasn't explained yet, that Jesus was going to be revealed to Israel as the Messiah. And then he went on to explain in verses 31 and 33 how this happened. There he says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So if you've read the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know John is talking about the time when he baptized Jesus. The most concise account of that is in Luke's gospel, chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. Let me just read it so your memories are freshed here. There it says, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice from heaven A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So here you see how it is that John's baptizing ministry became the means by which Jesus was revealed to Israel as the Messiah. When John baptized Jesus, three visible or audible phenomena occurred, which made it very evident to everyone who was there watching, ha, that this man, Jesus, was the Son of God, the Christ. So first, the heavens were were opened, and everyone could see it. Second, the divine person of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, came down out of the opening in heaven onto Jesus in the form of a dove, so that everyone could see it. And then third, the voice of God the Father spoke out of that opening in heaven, saying to Jesus, in the hearing of everyone, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This was how the Lord revealed to John the Baptist that Jesus was the Messiah for whom he had been preparing the way. And John actually tells us that God had revealed to him beforehand, that's what he says in verse 33, that he was going to see the Spirit descend and remain on someone. And when he did, he would know that person is the one. But it was also the means by which Jesus was revealed to Israel as the Messiah, as John 
said in verse 31, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. No, God had intentionally brought about these visible and audible phenomena so that all the Jews who were there watching Jesus be baptized by John would be the first to know, ha, Jesus is the Messiah for whom John had been preparing the way. Now, you might ask, why do I keep saying that these events which occurred at Jesus' baptism revealed to Israel that Jesus was the Messiah? The text doesn't actually mention the word Messiah or Christ anywhere. Well, it's because of something else which isn't explicit in the text but is implied and would have been understood by those familiar with the Old Testament. There are two things actually about this text. First, when the Holy Spirit came down in a bodily form like a dove so that everyone could see it and rested upon Jesus at his baptism, that actually echoed multiple prophecies about the Messiah from the book of Isaiah. Not once, not twice, three times the Lord had revealed through the prophet Isaiah that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon the Christ. So the first is in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. says of the Messiah, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Next, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. The Messiah is here speaking, the servant of the Lord, and he's saying, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, etc., etc. Finally, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. The Lord says of the Messiah, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. What's particularly striking about that third one, actually, is that it provides almost an exact description of what happened at Jesus' baptism. Did you see it? It describes the Lord putting his spirit on the Messiah and saying, Behold my servant in whom my soul delights. Did you hear the echo? At Jesus' baptism, the Lord sent the Spirit down upon Jesus and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So you see, that's why I say that Jesus was revealed to John and to Israel as the promised Messiah at his baptism because of these visible and audible events which occurred clearly echoed these prophecies about about the Messiah in Isaiah. That the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him. And that's how John knew, ah, this is the one. Second, though, in verse 33, we're told that John saw the Spirit descend and remain upon Jesus, and he knew because God had told him so, that Jesus was the one, he says, who would baptize people, immerse them with the Holy Spirit. And the description of Jesus in that way also echoed what the prophets said would happen in the last days when the Messiah arrived and God's salvation would come for Israel. 
Let me just give you some examples. Isaiah 32, verse 15. The prophet predicted that Israel would languish, quote, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. In Isaiah chapter 44, verses 3 and 4, the Lord described the day of salvation that was coming for Israel in the future, and he said, I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing stream. The prophet Joel, of course, you know this text, right? He described that coming day of salvation for Israel in the future. And he said that at that time, I will pour my spirit upon, or sorry, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Or consider chapter 12, verse 10 of Zechariah. He said, I will pour out on the house of David and the inheritance of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me and on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn. Do you see, the prophets had predicted that this coming day, the day when the Messiah arrived, and the day when God saved his people in the last days, it would coincide with this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the imagery is of water cascading down and covering his people and bringing life and repentance and restoration, right? That that would accompany the arrival of the Messiah and his salvation. So John recognized that Jesus was the one who had come to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And he was recognizing that Jesus was this long-awaited Messiah who would pour out the Holy Spirit to renew and to restore God's people. So third, John's baptizing ministry revealed Jesus to Israel as the one who baptized, immersed people in the Holy Spirit, verses 31 and 32. And now fourth, just briefly, John saw and bore witness that Jesus is the Son of God. And you see that in verse 34. And there John is recorded, he says, And I have seen... That's what he's been talking about. And have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He's pointing at Jesus. In other words, based on what he had seen when he baptized Jesus, the Spirit of God coming down out of heaven, etc., John had begun declaring publicly that Jesus specifically was the Son of God. You know, that phrase, Son of God, it can refer at times in this gospel even to Jesus' identity as the eternal divine Son of God within the Trinity. However, it can also refer simply to Jesus' identity as the Messiah, the promised King from David's line, whom the Lord, you remember, in the great Davidic covenant had said of him, 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. The Davidic king, the promised Messiah, would be the son of God par excellence, like David, but far greater. And I think that's probably what John the Baptist means here. 
based upon what he had seen at Jesus' baptism, he'd come to know, he began to publicly testify to Israel that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, so that people might believe in him. So, fourth, John saw and he bore witness that Jesus is the Son of God, verse 34. So, what then can we learn from these four things which John the Baptist said about Jesus according to these verses? How should they impact our lives today? Now, the first and most important way that John's testimony about Jesus should impact our lives is that he gives us an opportunity to know Jesus. You know, we would have no access to this knowledge if it weren't for the inspired testimony of the eyewitnesses, like John, which are recorded for us, written down for us in the New Testament, so that they could be preserved for us to read. But as we read what they said about Jesus, what the eyewitnesses testified about him, we can know him. And knowing Jesus is the most vital and the most precious gift that God could ever give us. Do you remember how John says this in John 17, 3? Jesus is praying and he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing Jesus is eternal life. Paul That former Pharisee and persecutor of the church turned Christian and apostle when he was himself confronted by the risen Lord Jesus on on the road to Damascus. He famously said later on in a letter to the Philippians, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Do you know Jesus? If you do know him, this passage is going to help you to know him better. If you don't know him, this passage will help you do so for the first time. Because its entire passage is to tell you what John the Baptist said about Jesus based upon what he had seen with his eyes and heard with his ears. So let all of us press into this passage Meditate upon what it's saying. Take these truths about Jesus into our souls by faith so that they might grant us knowledge of Jesus, either for the first time or to deepen the knowledge of him that we already have. So what can we learn of Jesus from what John the Baptist said about him in these verses? Well, of course, we first learn, as I've been saying, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, promised in the Old Testament scriptures. We learn that unlike other men, he was before he was born. He existed as the eternal son of God before he entered into the world as a man. And that means that he is so much greater than John or any one of us that we all owe him not only our trust, but our humble reverence and respect. You remember John says, this is one whom I'm not worthy to even loosen the strap of his sandals. But building upon that, I just want to highlight two main things which Jesus tells us, which John tells us, that Jesus has come to do in his role as the Messiah and talk about what they mean for us. First, we saw 
He has come to offer himself up as a substitutionary and atoning sacrifice for our sins so that we might be forgiven. You remember, this is what John meant when he pointed at Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, under the old covenant, I was just reading this in my devotions, I'm in Leviticus, when a person sinned against God by breaking one of his commands, he was instructed, Leviticus 4 and 5 lays it all out. He's to bring an animal. One of the animals you could bring was a lamb to the tabernacle, the tent of God, as an offering. And when he got there, he would lay his hands, or she would lay her hands on the head of the animal, symbolizing a transfer of their sins to the animal. And then the animal will be led away by the priest and killed before the Lord. And then its fat portions would be burned on the altar as an offering for sin. And though the writer of Hebrews tells us that the blood of goats and bulls, lambs, it couldn't actually take away sin, there was a symbolism here of the person's sin being laid upon another, a substitute who would bear the punishment they deserved, the wages of sin is death, in their place. And in this way, you have this repeated refrain, Leviticus 4.27 is an example The priest shall make atonement for him for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. Sins removed, taken away. Here, John the Baptist has told us, Jesus is the ultimate sacrificial lamb, provided by God to make an atonement for the sins of all those throughout the world who would believe in him, so that they might be forgiven. I think of the prophet Isaiah's words in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Rebellion against God. And the Lord has laid on him, his servant, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. Think of your sins. Small sins, great sins, those which you've already committed in the past, those which you're going to commit in the future, pride, selfishness, harsh words, bitter thoughts, boasting, arguing, drunkenness, drug abuse, sexual immorality, vanity, slander, abortion, adultery, divorce, homosexual desires and activity, unbelief, despair, Suicidal thoughts, self-harm, all our sins laid upon the Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he willingly hung upon the cross. And there he bore the wrath and curse of God and died for our sins in our place. He was both the great high priest and the sacrificial lamb. And by offering himself up unto death as our sin-bearing substitute, he made full atonement for all our sins so that they are truly taken away forever. The writer of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews 9.26, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
Chapter 10, verse 10. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Believer, let that sink in. Consider the magnitude of what he's done for you. Think about its effects upon your state before God. Your sins are removed, washed away by the blood of Jesus, never to be held against you by God again. God has justified you. Who's going to condemn you now? You're at peace with him forever. Nothing shall separate you from his love. Consider how that should affect your heart toward him. What attitude, what steadfast and loyal love, what reverent submission ought to follow out of our hearts toward Jesus, who has loved us and given himself for us in this way. He ought, how we ought to hate the sin in our lives that was laid upon him And required him to bear God's wrath and curse for us. How we ought to love to do what is pleasing in his sight. But will bring him honor in this world. Unbeliever. You who are still in your sins because you are rebelling against God. Your sins are still on your head. You now stand guilty before God because your sins have not been removed. You face the prospect of perishing under his righteous judgment. You've gone astray like sheep. You've gone your own way. Behold, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Can you see him? John pointing to him. He's your only hope of forgiveness and of peace with God. And come to him in faith this morning, trusting him, trusting in his death alone. No foolish works of penance on your part. His death alone to make atonement for your sins. And he will wash you clean. He will clothe you in his own perfect righteousness as a gift of grace. But second, we see that Jesus came to pour out the Holy Spirit, to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. Why? So that they might be renewed and transformed. This is what John meant when he said of Jesus, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You know, that image of baptizing, right? It's an image of immersing with the Holy Spirit. It indicates that that God was now giving the Holy Spirit to his people in abundance through Jesus, more than in times past. This is described actually later on in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, where it says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John says, now this he said about the spirit 
whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. But now Jesus has been glorified. And when he was glorified, that is, when he rose from the dead, when he ascended up into the, to the right hand of God in heaven, he did, Acts tells us, pour out the Spirit upon his people, into the hearts of his people. We read about it in Acts chapter 2. It all began on that day of Pentecost. And when, and what does the, the Holy Spirit do for the person upon whom he has been poured out, into whose heart he has been poured out? First, he gives new spiritual life. He brings sinners from a state of spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ. Jesus would later describe it in John chapter 3, you remember, as being born of the Spirit, receiving new life by the Spirit, John 3, verse 6. And at the same time, the Spirit washes, he, he sanctifies, he sets us apart unto God for his service, and then he changes the fundamental disposition of our heart so that we're no longer enslaved to the corrupt desires of our flesh, but we have a new heart. We have a new love for God, a new desire to obey God. This is what the prophet Ezekiel had foreseen and described in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. You know the passage, he said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put you within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will Put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then the spirit, he doesn't just do that and then leave. He abides, he remains, he continues to indwell those who believe in Jesus. He will never leave and he's there to comfort us in times of trouble, to strengthen us for service, to intercede, Romans 8 before God for us with groanings too deep for words to assure us of our adoption as God's sons and daughters. He's called the spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption, to fill us with the knowledge of Christ's love, to reveal to us the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and then to transform us into that same image from one degree of glory to the next. You see, this is what every sinner needs, isn't it? Unbeliever, your heart and your current state, if you're not in Christ, your heart is twisted. Your heart is corrupted by sin. That's why you would never want people to know all the thoughts and desires that you experience in your heart. None of us would. But your corruption, it holds you captive. You cannot stop sinning. You don't believe me, just go and try it. None of your attempts at self-reformation are going to be successful, sinner. What you need is an internal renovation. You need a new heart, which is no longer in bondage to your corruptions, but freed, freed not to go your own way, but freed to do what's right before God, which leads to life and blessing. And that's why you need Jesus. He baptizes people with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who can give you new spiritual life and sanctify your heart. So, unbeliever, I pray that you would hear Jesus calling you today. If anyone thirsts, 
Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He said these things of the Spirit. Respond to that call. Come to him in faith. He will give you the Holy Spirit today. Believers, here's another blessing we've received. You know, don't be fooled by Satan's lies. If you have put your trust in Jesus, repenting of your sins, he has baptized you with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has caused you to be born again. And the Spirit is in the process of renovating your heart. To to make your heart a more and more proper dwelling place for God's holy presence. He's fixing you up inside. (laughs) Your struggle with sin, that's not a sign that you're not saved. In fact, if you're struggling with sin and you hate sin and you want to overcome it, that's a good sign. The Spirit is at work in you. You've been born again. Nor is the slowness with which you make progress in holiness at times a sign that the Spirit isn't at work in you. His ways are mysterious. We can't control them. He's like a wind which blows where it wills. Your backslidings, believer, they're not permanent. They're like small blips in this larger process of your glorious transformation into the image of Christ. So don't despair. But instead, knowing these things, keep pressing on toward the goal, as Paul said in Philippians 3. Repenting when you sin. Getting back up when you stumble. Seeking God in, in the word and in prayer. Fellowshipping with the saints for mutual encouragement. Striving for holiness, which as the writer of Hebrews says, without which no one will see the Lord. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you by his spirit, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And you can be sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do you remember Paul said in Ephesians 1.14 that the Holy Spirit, who's been poured out into your heart by Jesus, is a seal marking you off as God's own possession. And the Spirit therefore guarantees our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Well, in conclusion, there's not a person in the world today who's not affected by Jesus in one way or another, given his effect on history. So it's fitting, isn't it, that every person try and understand who he is, why his influence on human history has been so great. And the best way to do this is to read the testimony of those who knew him personally during his earthly life. And one such person is John the Baptist. And this morning, we've read what he said about Jesus, at least some of it. He's told us amazing things. He said Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said that Jesus outranked him because he was before him. He said that Jesus came to baptize people with the Holy Spirit so they would be renewed and transformed. He said that Jesus is the Son of God. 
the Messiah. Let us believe John's testimony. Let us grow as a result in our knowledge of Jesus Christ this morning. For our good, for his glory. Let's pray, and as I pray, if the men could come up who are going to be serving the Lord's Supper. Our Father, we thank you for the revelation of your Son that we have in Scripture. The testimony of the eyewitnesses whose lives were changed forever as a result of knowing Jesus. We thank you that the Holy Spirit's business, at least one thing that he does, is to open the eyes of our heart to grasp who Jesus is, to see the glory of God in him. This is most precious to us. Jesus is everything to us. And I pray that you would deepen our knowledge of him this morning, that we would go away from here in in greater awe of him, filled with a greater love for him, resolved once again to live for him. And now, Lord, as we reflect in a focused way, in a dramatic way upon his death on the cross and what it meant for us, we pray as we partake of the Lord's Supper that you would bless it to our souls, that it would be another means by which you work graciously in our hearts this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.